Carl Kramer. I'm the Dean of the Sydney Conservatorium, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening for Kim Williams' talk. In 1981, as a first-year student at the Yale School of Music, I had the opportunity to attend a master class with John Cage. There were approximately 150 of us wide-eyed, precocious, but somewhat skeptical students eagerly awaiting to hear this iconic oracle speak and work with us. Cage walked onto the completely barren stage of Sprague Hall, save for a single chair, sat down, looked us squarely in the eye, and asked earnestly in his impish manner, so what is more musical, a truck passing by a factory or a truck passing by a music school? <laughs> we all spent the rest of the day thinking about that. I still think about it every time I walk outside and cross Macquarie Street and the KL Expressway. Cage then proceeded to say to us in his soothing, low-key voice, most likely you'll all need a bio someday, so this afternoon I'm going to get to know some of you. For the next two and a half hours, Cage worked with many of us individually on stage constructing these short paragraphs. This was curious to almost everyone, except Cage, of course, who thought of it as some kind of performance art. There was some grumbling, as the composers thought they would get personal insights, or, or excuse me, the, as the composers thought they would get critiques, we performers thought we would get personal insights on how to interpret his fiendishly simple music. And the percussionists were especially perturbed, as they were sure that when asked, he would reveal secret tidbits on the gestation and extended techniques of his three constructions, which were at that time relatively new, composed only in the early 40s, but very famous and ubiquitously performed by anyone who could hold a stick and hit something. Cage emphasized simplicity, brevity, honesty, and a certain ironic non-hyperbole. During my brief session with him, after finding out, my, uh, finding out about my father, he smiled and said, your father is a plumber and you play the tuba? Well, we can certainly work with that. So how does one introduce a man who needs no introduction? With apologies to John Cage, I offer the following. <clears throat> Kim Williams was educated at several fine schools and toured the world as a musician and impresario, riding the wave of life as a friend, teacher, middle manager, executive, and CEO. He has at the same time enraged and tranquilized his colleagues with challenging ideas and innovative solutions all the while faithfully serving his art, his country, and the people of Australia in the highest order. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podium Mr. Kim Williams. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that surprising lateral and very generous introduction, Carl. Um, I've described my recently released book, Rules of Engagement, as a lifescape. It's about numerous experiences, observations, enthusiasms and passions in an Australian life, one which has been full of opportunity, good fortune and a rich diversity of outcomes. I'm an adult child of the 1970s, which means that the territory ranges from the indulgent to the serious, through the preposterous and funny, and on into that which I trust constitutes the genuinely compelling. Whatever, I hope it's a jolly good read. The chapters cover diverse territory and thought and experience snapshots. There's one about my mum, one about sport, 
one about education balanced with offerings on my constant companions, reading, music and cinema. There's something on friendship and one on the increasingly challenged art of listening. There's material from the rich experience of my arts life which has provided a central continuity to my view of the world. The chapter on cinema has the most dangerous of all things, a list of films you should all see. And then there are the obligatory inclusions of television, politics and media, each of which has been core to my professional working life over many decades. Finally, there are some hopefully non-ponderous observations on management and leadership, backed up with offerings on the fun of wine and the serendipity which governs all well-enjoyed travel. Today I want to speak to you about those parts of the book which are devoted to music and listening. Up until seven or eight years ago when I gave a speech at the request of my dear friend Mary Valentine about the personal impact of music, I'd not previously ever really sat back and thought about the way in which music has influenced my development pervasively. When I gave that earlier speech, I was accompanied by a wide variety of wonderful musical examples, several dozen. Today you'll all just have to use your imaginations. I've been asked to give that speech several times since, and I will do it sometime, but not today, given the ardent complexities it entails in execution and delivery. Believe me, it is a piece of work, and whilst technology has changed since I first gave it, the rehearsal required precludes me from doing it today. In Rules of Engagement, I mentioned that earlier this year, I was the keynote speaker at the inaugural Asia-Pacific Music Summit in April, an initiative from Carl Kramer. At that time, I spoke about leadership in an age of digital disruption to the directors and deans of the leading tertiary music education institutions which Carl had convened with his co-host, the head of the Beijing Conservatorium, and other schools from Shanghai, Tokyo, Melbourne, Singapore, Auckland, San Francisco, Hong Kong, Taipei, and the University of Southern California's Thornton School. I said that in this time of immense change, there must be a solid commitment to the, to the music educators' need to shape and adapt to the non-linear modalities of modern students, the opposite to the rather linear world of the traditional academy, and to offer better defences and positive positioning for music as a bedrock to good thinking. This is because music does more to activate the brain than anything else, and that, I think, needs to be one of the primary defences for music education in the modern world. One of the supremely practical benefits from learning music also is that it makes you listen, truly listen, sit up and listen, even indulge in listening. Nearly all of the time, most people today are not listening to what is being directed to them. The cacophony that regularly surrounds us makes people metaphorically switch off. They stop hearing. They don't listen. People in the West and a huge part of the East have become poor listeners. Ironic because listening has never been more important in the new digitally empowered world in which we live. Music teaches us the discipline to listen closely and well, to concentrate and understand, and to learn from connecting the dots from the oral to the neural. It's natural, even if we have to learn how to do it now, but it is fun. Many things follow from close listening. Tolerance, respect, patience, thinking, discipline, order, and well, when well managed, a better sense of perspective and insight. Watch as you listen to, say, a great string quartet. 
On a stage and you see the power of connected listening between the players at work. I've heard it many times from the Guarneri, the Goldner, the Tokyo, the Juilliard, the Emerson, the Takaj, the Smetna, the Amadeus or the Magnificent Italiano. And then from the players it transmits itself across the audience. When the audience is really connected, it can be an almost mystical experience. The story is always the same. Great performances are built on trust, complete connection, and above all, close listening. The same is true of the best rock and jazz musicians, Clapton at his zenith, Miles Davis, or the revelatory Charlie Bird Parker, a great example of how this can happen. Listening, always listening. Or think of the seeming impossibility of a huge symphony, 100-piece symphony orchestra at full tilt in one of the Mahler symphonies, and the impossible happens like magic, revealed as if it was straight from heaven, all thanks to connected, focused listening. Listening is our least developed skill, and yet the world is dependent on it. On one of those many flights of fancy that the internet enables, I discovered the US academic Ralph Nichols, whose unusual career was devoted to the study of listening. He established an international listening association. He significantly said the most basic of all human needs is the need to understand and be understood. The best way to understand people is, guess what, to listen to them. I would add that music is a vital key. The great Japanese composer Toru Takamitsu urged audiences to listen with clean ears. It's great counsel. I suppose I first fell seriously in love with music when I was 12 and I took up the clarinet at school through the encouragement of my teacher, Richard Gill, who remains my closest male friend to this day. Richard has been, for me, the most important teacher in my life and he opened up a world that I have treasured and explored ever since. Our friendship had, and has, at its bedrock, music. In the book, I describe my circuitous route to the clarinet by way of the flugelhorn and before that the banjo and how from the outset my curiosity about and eagerness to learn music was firmly established. Music has persuasively influenced my development. It's, a well, it's well established that an early music and arts training has a profound effect on a person's character and outlook. This manifests itself in a variety of ways which have been described by many others. Music provides discipline, which is all too absent in many world settings. It clears the mind, exercises the imagination, helps in conflict resolution, develops integrity, and refines a person's capacity to foresee the consequences of action or decision. As I said before, nothing affects the brain more per pervasively than music. We now know this from numerous studies. MRIs prove that music activates more neural pathways than anything else. Music has been fundamental to my view of the world and the enjoyment of it, providing almost a natural prism through which I observe and perceive things so that I never really stand back and think about it deductively or didactically. I always have music in my head. Paul Creating recently expressed similar views in interviews with Kerry O'Brien, talking about the need to boost himself to prepare for major policy encounters with a decent Mahler listening session. That's true. I remember. I remember waiting and waiting and waiting while the PM was off boosting himself listening to Mahler. Marvellous stuff. 
He's a remarkably well-informed listener and has great taste. Music is, I believe, fundamental not just to a well-rounded education, but also to an expansive worldview for many reasons. Music teaches us about things that are not discussed or emphasised in our lives generally or sufficiently. It teaches us about, the beauty, about beauty and the enduring... <coughs> pardon me, and the enduring value of human creativity in a way that we respond to instinctively and spontaneously. I regard it as a lost part of growing up in the modern world. Music, painting, writing, history, politics, philosophy and even mathematics and science are all intertwined and have vital connections that liberate understanding when studying as a young person if those connections are identified and given life. Most of those connections are no longer made in the modern educator's world with those horrifically poor curricula that have been dumbed down to a base level that even as a school student I would have recognised as being dangerous for learning. Our society is descending into a vast, vapid mediocrity that allegedly reflects the democratisation of information and the arts, meaning students get to choose what they want and damn the past or the notion of history and connectedness between generations, so that in music, anything other than rock music, or perhaps at best folk music, is seen as not having any vitality or importance in a public school. In my view, this is a catastrophe for clear thinking and represents a dangerous triumph of ignorance which will serve our society and its future citizens very poorly. Music, like all the arts, provides us with emotional nourishment. And while there is no contest with the other arts, music for me is unique because it is not primarily about our physical world. It's about another psychological and emotional experience. It so often is not about words or images of our earthly world, but rather about invoking deep inner feelings, something connected with primal nascent needs in us all. Music matters deeply and that needs to be reflected in the teaching priorities of the nation. Music is at the very core of all human experience and expression. It is one of the most aspirational and inspirational phenomena across the planet, providing deep satisfaction through singing, playing, composing, dancing or pleasurably listening. It is fabulously portable and now, through digital technologies, it is pervasively available. Music also provides a creative partnership to lift excitement, atmosphere and intensity of meaning in other areas of human creativity such as the theatre or film or television. And as I mentioned at the summit earlier this year, for me what is fundamentally important about music is that it is about using the sense from which in the experience of life we have become most desensitised, our hearing. Sight, taste, touch and smell are all senses that we can switch off. We can elect not to experience any particular one of them relatively easily. We can't switch off our hearing with the same facility, hands over ears being relatively awkward and unsustainable compared with shutting the eyes or closing the mouth or electing not to make contact with something. Therefore, we generally have much less awareness of and sensitivity to our hearing and the oral universe that surrounds us. Life noise has become an atmospheric accompaniment that we've grown inured to, resulting in the outcome that all too often we are poor listeners to speech or music.
There are constant reminders in the workplace as to just how often most people are not paying particular attention to what is being said. People frequently simply don't listen. They've lost the art of concentrated hearing, so fundamental to real human connection. Music alone restores capacity to concentrate and liberate your brain to really listen and enjoy the process of engaged hearing. Reverting to my experience of music, when I made my way from primary to high school in Sydney, much to my pleasure, the school offered me, as I mentioned before, an instrument to learn. Public schools in those days, I'm the child of a public education, provided starter instruments. It was a terrific program. Our country today dramatically underperforms in music education and is almost aggressively indifferent to the centrality music has to a well-rounded, capable human being. During the final two years of high school, I was able to join the public school's concert orchestra, which rehearsed on Saturdays in the education department's outer city premises. I believe that none of those facilities or activities survives today. And while there is an active youth orchestra movement in Australia, the abnegation of responsibility for anyone but a private student to have access to a musical instrument and instruction is a sorry comment on priorities, particularly if you're poor. It is all part of the dumbing down of schools and the attendant cultural-come-economic divide reflecting anything other than the real, educa real educational priorities, something I have quite a bit to say about in the book. You'll have to buy it. From third form, I had started composing my own music. Third form dates me terribly. From year nine, I had started composing my own music, and that was to continue up until I was 30 or so. I loved writing music and may go back to it. There is such pleasure in imagining a sound world and constructing an inner framework that holds it together and then hearing it realised in live performance with an audience. I revered other composers at that, at that time and nascent friendships with Peter Sculthorpe, Ross Edwards, Richard Meal and Nigel Butterley followed. The late great Peter Sculthorpe was particularly generous in his encouragement and I remember the thrill... <coughs> That I, that I had when he phoned in response to a score I had sent to him when I was about 15. I used to very pompously sign my scores Kimberly Linton Williams so as to distinguish me from Rafe Vaughan Williams. <laughs> Peter thought it was hilarious. I went on to study music at university in 1970 and Peter gave me, as he did with so many others, enormous support and encouragement. He was a rare and wonderful giant in Australian music affairs and I very much look forward to the tribute being paid to him later this month at the Conservatorium. In closely watching and speaking with my teachers and many young peers in different parts of Australia who were all also studying at that time, I realised that we were driven by a very open and focused approach to our work. There was a frankness about providing criticism and other feedback in ways that could only be described as having been unusually direct. Not mucking about in making it clear as to what worked and what did not. There should be, should be more of this in assessing things in our country. A real degree of professional accountability for your work and its content can generate critical responses in ways that can be quite character forming. It's influenced my life outside music ever since. I've always been open to professional feedback and criticism and similarly have never been fearful to provide it, I assure you. 
there can be no doubt that that quality follows from the rigorous standards that applied in my music experiences, where criticism and critical engagement is part of the profession. The notion of absolute standards is central to mainstream Western music cultures, not only in classical music but also in jazz, rock, rock and roll and popular light music. In contemporary Australia, outside of the pathetically narrow confines of the so-called culture wars, we have lost the art and focus to offer criticism in a pure sense. There is too much concern with what, what others may think or about potential personal paybacks that limits our ability to reflect a mature and considered perspective informed with no other motive than the health of creative output and the considered review of its content. The current environment is inconsistent with our past academic, artistic and political origins where critical review and at times charged debate were invariably central to creative, social and intellectual life. It has always been my view that Australians generally do not receive criticism well and that our inability to receive criticism is matched only by our inability to give criticism in a way that is thoughtful, caring, constructive and nourishing. In music, the situation is different because music is built on layers of disciplined study that not only welcomes criticism, but actively seeks it out. Music and its health, like many of the arts, are dependent on a fairly forensic approach to review and assessment. There are no shortcuts. It is hard work and requires a lot of effort and a consistent quest for knowledge. You simply have to learn the repertoire. There's no way to avoid it. Author Malcolm Gladwell sets out in his book Outliers a coherent theory of 10,000 hours being the minimum needed to achieve excellence and to stand out in most fields of human endeavour. There is a lot that is commendable in this theory in terms of the level of focus and study needed to achieve the highest standards. Music study, practice, rehearsal, focused effort on composition, intense concentration over many hours all provided life skills that have stayed with me ever after. They are invaluable and have been central to my own work ethic. During my period at university I discovered management through my diverse experiences in promoting all manner of concerts from the preposterous to the transcendent. I was selected to be the concert organiser of the International Society of Contemporary Music by the marvellous scallywag Professor Donald Peart, the inaugural professor of music at the University of Sydney. Peart was a true English eccentric, a close friend of Rafe Vaughan Williams and a devoted man of music. He inducted me into the experience of managing concerts, contracting musicians, scheduling rehearsals, running advertisements and selling tickets. I became the go-to make-it-happen person because nature abhors a vacuum and I was the one ready to step up and do what was necessary for the concerts to materialise. I balanced the organisational duties with my study, performance and composition and didn't really reflect on the competing demands. My constant sense of obligation to work probably derives from that time. Clearly, Donald hated all that side of things and he left me and others pretty much to our own devices in putting events on. It was a real process of trial and error in learning about budgets, programming, scheduling, venue management, publicity and marketing all the food groups. If the most valuable experience is, as I believe, a catalogue of screw-ups, then I learned much in that period. Lessons I've never forgotten. 
Huge risks were taken with non-existent expense management systems other than a ratty notebook. The guiding principle was get it done. Much of it was no doubt horrifyingly reckless in the way the cash was handled and the events promoted, but we all mucked in and there was a Protestant-style sense of fair play and honesty, which meant nothing untoward ever happened. Although at times there were losses of heroic dimension, notably the production of Vaughan Williams' Sir John in Love, which set new lows in box office underperformance. It was also during this period at university that my understanding of the musics of the world expanded dramatically. I learned from a pair of brilliant ethnomusicologists, the Dutch academic Willem Andriance and his American wife, Rebecca. They taught me about Japanese, Indian and Pakistani music. I then learned about Balinese and Javanese music and later about an array of folk and other ethnic musics from the noted eccentric American ethnomusicologist, William Mann, when I was on a scholarship in Holland through the Edward van Bynum Foundation, which Willem had secured for me. I also learned to like popular music from friends at university and discovered the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and artists like Steve Winwood and Eric Clapton, who are still central to my taste, as are a fleet of great jazz composers and musicians from Duke Ellington down, and subsequently I've discovered the joys of other songwriters and two of my favourite popular songsmiths of the 20th century are Irving Berlin and Cole Porter. Music and tolerance are very close bedfellows. You learn from music that there are many ways to express yourself. It comes back to the listening thing, paying attention, observing and learning. Following university, I was a lecturer and the resident concert organiser here at the New South Wales Conservatorium under Rex Hobcroft. In fact, next month, we're having the 50th anniversary of Rex's establishment of the Tasmanian Conservatorium in Hobart. Should be great fun. We're going to premiere a piece by Rex. Or they, are, I should say, they are going to premiere a piece by Rex and I'm going to attend the performance. I was also appointed as a member of the inaugural music board of the Refashioned Australia Council when I was 20 in March 1973. Then I became the general manager of Music Rostrum, of which Roger Woodward was the artistic director and Rex Hobcroft the chairman. Rostrum ran a set of music festivals in Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide in each of 1974 and 1975. And I still remember the feeling of creeping incapacity when one of our then board members, Donald MacDonald, said, Kim, we must have a detailed cash flow. I replied, certainly, Donald as long as you first tell me what it is. <laughs> so it was through music when I was 22 that I learned about balance sheets and profit and loss statements, more L's than P's, sadly, and about comprehensive budgeting and estimating properly. The festivals were a classic example of being thrown into deep water administratively. In fact, they were more like being thrown into a very distant part of the ocean. I rapidly learned to swim, so to speak. In 1975, we toured the great Italian composer Luciano Berio, who I, regarded as the, who I do regard as the inheritor of the compositional mantle of people like Stravinsky. He directed concerts of his own music with the legendary mezzo-soprano Kathy Bavarian, who had many of the finest works of the 1950s and 60s by dozens of composers written expressly for her. Meeting them caused a seismic shift in my life, which is described in the book. It included, incidentally, meeting people like John Cage. I met a sort of roll call of musicians because 
you realise in a community of musicians, of course, they deal with their community of musicians, with their peers. And so um, I, I got a pretty good teledex back then. That wasn't the point. I mean, most of the time I was just agape, absolutely in awe of all these people. I share um, your love of John Cage, Carl, and I think A Year From Monday is one of the most exquisite sets of essays ever written about music. I think they're... and about thinking. They're wonderful. On returning to Australia in mid-1977, I worked at Music of Eva for six and a half years and finished as general manager in late 1983. That period really rounded me as a manager. I had a fine mentor in Chairman Ken Tribe and will forever be grateful for his generosity in the council he afforded me over half a lifetime. After Ken passed away in 2010, I had the honour to commission a string quartet from Ross Edwards in his memory as a tribute to all that he did in supporting all manner of arts, social and medical research endeavour in our country. Ross produced a terrific piece. Although um, I have yet to hear it live because the cellist on the day before the performance here in Sydney had the very, very bad, made the very bad judgement call to go surfing and, um, and broke her wrist. Dampened the performance somewhat. I don't think you can ever convey just how expansive the experience of arts management is generally and in particular how very demanding it was in Australia back in the 1970s. You had to be a jack of all trades. I learned to be the programmer and planner, to do the budgets and negotiate the contracts, to manage foreign currency, advocate sponsorship, develop marketing campaigns and execute all of the advertising as well as writing ads and press kits. All arts companies operated in the same way. It was very much a do-it-yourself era. We worked hard and learned quickly. There was a wonderfully generous camaraderie during that period across the diverse companies, and many of us from that time remain firm friends today. The 1970s and early 80s were a particular time in Australian creative life and saw a welter of possibilities liberated and driven by a restless energy to celebrate original Australian work, whether it was in music, film, theatre, art or literature. It was about Australian artists and their audiences creating fresh work and telling new stories. The energy was tangible and it was as profound in music as it was in the more publicly obvious manifestations of literature, theatre, film, television and the visual arts. We had huge audiences for contemporary music then and the audiences were much more diverse in age and social composition. Over the years, I have enjoyed expanding my engagement with the arts and I have become a substantial direct donor in a variety of areas to companies, to ensembles and individuals through commissions and scholarships. I believe very strongly that there is a responsibility to support the arts and creative endeavour personally and directly. The arts in our country are all too often under a cloud for a variety of reasons not least of which is an almost magnetic attraction from many commentators and decision-makers to rank philistinism high, and in fairness, the arts community is often less than helpful in providing coherent, convincing, countervailing advocacy. Throughout my adult life, I've felt as if I'm in a time warp with a creeping sequence of deja vu moments where the same attacks against the arts and creative life are made, and the recital of well-rehearsed defences are, hopefully, offered. It happens again and again with the sense that the arts community is seen as being ungrateful and ungracious by those with power, and in response it is matched by the arts community seeing most decision-makers 
politicians, commentators, bureaucrats and the like, as being far distant from understanding creative life and therefore their responses can be cartoon-like and really, at times, very petty. I left Music Aviva to take up the position as Chief Executive at the Australian Film Commission in 1984, but within a year I was back as a board member, a position I relinquished only after another 20 years, including six as the chairman. It has been my most enduring relationship with the performing arts, and I cherish chamber music literature more than any other. You can't beat a good string quartet, quintet, or sextet in my book. It is music-making at, at its most precious, in intimate, intense, conversational, fiery, dramatic, and at times so unearthly in its beauty that it simply and quite literally takes your breath away. From the AFC, I've gone on to have an extended commercial career in film, television and the media. The nature of my commercial work is and has always been very demanding, while offering enormous satisfaction. I firmly believe that many of my leadership, management and, to the extent that I have them, skills of persuasion are directly attributable to the discipline and experience of my music life in all its strands. It was in the arts that I learned to never give up and to keep on trying, approaching a problem from a variety of angles until a solution is found. Most recently, I was the chairman of the Sydney Opera House Trust until the end of last year. It was a singular privilege. There can be little doubt that it would be highly unlikely the Sydney Opera House would ever either be chosen or built in Australia today. I find it near impossible to conceive of any politician or media body in Australia enthusiastically and forthrightly defending and selling the construction of such a bold conception. The story of the competition is rich with serendipity, especially in Aero Saarinen being in included in the judging panel and then having arrived late for the judging, retrieving the Utsun designs from the reject pile. The rest is, as they say, history. A lot of it's in the book. Our contemporary descent into the triumph of process over outcomes probably guarantees such moments will rarely recur. It represents anything other than progress. I find it quite depressing and I'm a natural optimist. It works against the bold products of competition and innovation which lie at the core of our nation's future, one which will secure a resilient and dynamic life for our people. The Sydney Opera House stands as a testament to a bold vision, trust in competition, and to having the courage to be true to convictions and see something through, all of which are values I inherited from my music life. Music for me is still the great energizer. It provides a balance in life that for me is as central to survival as breathing. And we should use each and every available argument to defend and promote the fundamental need for formal and comprehensive music education from the commencement of school for all the reasons I've spoken about. But I have to tell you that it saddens me to think that notwithstanding the myriad benefits derived from music, we are increasingly, I am increasingly, compelled to defend music by reference to other impacts rather than to reference music itself. Because music is good for us, period. It's good for the soul. It's good for human tolerance. It opens your perception. It frees your mind. It makes us listen and truly hear. Music reinforces our capacity to feel and understand in ways that are equally mysterious and, I would say, divine. 
The feelings released by music and the devotion to beauty it represents are probably some of the most noble, positive, life-affirming outcomes in the diversity of all human activity. At its most simple, I can't imagine life without it. Thanks. Did we mention that Kim's book is for sale? <laughs> I have the same feelings what, what you said about the, the Sydney Opera House being built <clears throat> every time I walk into this building in the morning. And, um, and I think that coming from the United States, this, this place is such a Taj Mahal, it, it, it could never be built in the United States. There's, there's not enough money or political uh, political I don't know, I can't think of the word but um, guts, I guess to, um, to build a building like this, so I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying about I, the I, Opera I, House I agree with you, in fact the Conservatorium has such a rich history um, which we, we all look forward to the centenary um, next year I'm sorry, in 16 um, it is an amazing, amazing place. And the, the cavalcade of directors of the conservatorium is a history of, of music in our, in our country from Verbruggen on. And um, it's so interesting to look at what many of those people did and achieved. And, of course, the Sydney Opera House is directly attributable to Eugene Goosens. And Eugene Goosens is the person who persuade, persuaded Joe Carl to actually make it, to, to, to commit to it and to, to... They came up with the idea of the lottery so that they eliminated any budget problem. They came up with the idea of the competition and um, I'm sure Goosens was probably behind the selection of Serenin. And originally Joe Carl, of course, wanted to build the opera house at Wynyard, um, which was not an altogether silly idea because it was connected to public transport. But um, it was Goosens who... who, who chose the Benelong site. And in fact, if I can digress for a yeah. moment, one of the funniest stories I ever ever um, swapped with, with Jorn Utzen was after we'd um, done the opening of the colonnade um, on the side of the Opera House, which um, Her Majesty the Queen uh, did. And I, when we got home that night, I was with Jan, um, Jorn's son, who'd come out for the ceremony, and I um, said, so we've got to ring your dad. And so we rang Jorn and we were having a, a lovely conversation and, and Jorn was in a particularly garrulous mood. In fact, it ruined the meal because we were on the phone for about two hours. And he was talking about when he first met um, Joe Carl and he said, at that time, Kim, the, the site was not wholly delivered to me because there were all these sheds that went along the circular quayside that belonged to the, the, the operator of that part of Sydney Harbour and they were not included in the land that had been allocated for the Opera House so the tramways went but these, these maritime sheds remained and they were quite unsightly so Woodson's, um, Carl said Mr Architect is there anything I can do for you and he said um, yes Mr Premier I'd like those sheds removed from the side of the site and, and Carl said why and he explained and he said quite right at that time, Sydney had two harbour masters. It had one from the harbour bridge to the heads and one from the other side of the harbour bridge back down the Parramatta River. So 
Premier picked up the phone and rang the guy who was the harbour master from the, the bridge to the heads and said, uh, I don't know what the man's name is, let's call him Phil. Phil, how would you like to be the harbour master of the whole of Sydney Harbour? <laughs> Phil, of course, responded with ardent enthusiasm. And um, the Premier said, you know those sheds that are down on the side of the, um, of the opera house site? I think they've got to go. Can we do that too? And the, naturally those sheds were removed within days. <laughs> he was a wily man. And he, he, when they were finishing their first session, Carl said to, um, to Woodson, Mr Architect, if, I can, if, a, if a humble Premier can give you a simple piece of advice, turn earth quickly. I think he was a very wise man. Yeah. Um, I'm very pleased that in my chairmanship of the Opera House, we actually had, for the first time, a proper fitting acknowledgement put on the, um, on the box office level, just outside the box office where the, the spherical solution from Utsun is celebrated. Next to that, we have a, a proper tribute to Joe Carl. He'd never been celebrated on the site at all. And in this weird and wacky world in which we live, Carl, could we get a single Labor politician to come to the unveiling of that? Not one. Fascinating. Thank God I'm in music. <laughs> Better place. Um, <clears throat> this evening, we're going we're gonna to open it up for some questions. And Meredith is here with a microphone, and she's going to... Um, I'm going to choreograph her back and forth as you raise your hands. I get the first question since, since it's my building. Um, and w I wanted to ask you, Kim, after reading your book and you talking about the importance of, of music and, and how important a music degree is, not just because <clears throat> um, to be a performer or to be a music teacher or a composer, but the holistic approach um, that music gives us in education. And I want to, one of the first things that, that I know that I have to do when I talk to parents of prospective music students is um, I, I kind of look them in the eye and say, well, why would you want your son or daughter to get a music degree? Don't you know there's no jobs out there? And, you know, usually if you can talk them out of it, they really didn't want to do it that much, much in the first place. But most of them you can't talk out of because it's, it's inside. And... I wanted to ask you some of your thoughts about <clears throat> the, the, the pending deregulation of, of fees and how much more expensive, well, every degree is, including a music degree, could, could become if, fee, if um, fee deregulation goes in. And perhaps your thoughts on the value as music degrees will get even more expensive. Well, music is an expensive subject to teach, of course, because it has so much one-on-one -on -one, uh, teaching for... It's, it's literally for, still a medieval apprenticeship. It, it is. Um, and, of course, what has suffered over the years in close instruction in music is the actual contact time, or the paid contact time, I mm -hmm. should say, as between students and, and teachers. And the teachers, in many instances, generously make it up gratis in order to ensure that there is adequate t contact time with their students. Um, 
I'm, I'm always troubled by generic approaches in policy in most things. Uh, I, th I think this notion of one size fits all is, is profoundly um, offensive and it, it usually results in bad outcomes for specialist areas of endeavour. Um, so that I, I am apprehensive about the, 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 the impact of the, of the new fee deregulation and I'm apprehensive about the responses that are often glib that just say, well, HEX takes care of it all in terms of funding it, but the sort of debt mountain that you're looking at over a very long extended period of time um, will obviously be burdensome to a number of people who are electing to go into professions that don't pay as well as, as banking or the law or, or a number of other, you know, of, com of commercial life, which um, is clearly one of those unrecognised challenges that is inherent in all pricing systems for education. So I'm terribly apprehensive. Now, I have raised it with a couple of vice-chancellors, and um, they, they tell me that I am... that my concern is misplaced and that they, the, the, the pricing will be a lot more thoughtful and careful and that there will, in fact, be, particularly from large institutions, there will be a, a significant increase in the number of scholarships that are provided and there will be a certain institutional cross-subsidy that is delivered in certain aspects of the Academy's work. Um, and given that music is usually located in one of the big eight universities, um, they, they say I shouldn't be particularly um, concerned about it. And they may well be right. I, 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 I'm clearly you and they know a heck of a lot more about all this stuff than I do. Um, but m until we see it play out, my apprehension will, will continue. And one would hope, with such a major change, that there will be a lot of vigilance and care in its implementation to, mm -hmm. to actually address the, you know, the notorious unintended consequences. Yeah. Do we have any... Questions from the audience. Tim, I'm just wondering, in your corporate life, when you were recruiting young or up-and-coming managers, was the music education one of your selection criteria? Well, it, it, it would not be uncommon, of course, in Europe or America to um, meet people who'd had a music education, but it's, it, it, is, it is, in fact, quite uncommon in Australia. Um, you, you'll, you'll, you'll meet people who've, who've, who've come through a, a private education and had some, so, some measure of music education, from, you know, from modest to, to very substantial um, music education. Whereas, in my experience in, in, in many other countries, it's a much more common phenomenon. People in commercial life have always made comments and um, have spoken... With, with, with some dismay about me having a music education and working in, in, in senior commercial positions, whereas it wouldn't even be commented on in most other countries. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've regularly dobbed Jim Wolfenson in and reminded Australians that, that Jim, who had a very distinguished investment banking career, um, is a very fine cellist, um, that he was Isaac Stern's... Um, partner in, in re renovating Carnegie Hall uh, and that in fact he celebrated his 60th birthday 
with a cello recital which he gave on the stage of Carnegie Hall and then was joined by his mate Yo-Yo Ma and a number of other cellists um, as they had a jolly good time. Um, And I, I say that to make a point with them that people shouldn't assume Whereas um, it, it's a good thing that we celebrate sport and excellence in sport, and I'm a, I'm a great defender and promoter of sport because I think it's the only area of life in Australia where Australians feel truly comfortable with excellence and they feel truly committed to a quest for excellence. And I think this is something to be, to be treasured and drawn from and then applied into other areas of life in terms of matters of intellect and creativity. Um, but I'd have to say that probably in the course of... I'm sorry to be so long-winded. In the course of a fairly long career, I'd met very few people who had had a music education in senior positions. More alarmingly, they don't listen to music other than a very limited, limited body of music. Down here in front. Hi, um, I'm interested to know um, when it was that you moved from the arts to the corporate world and whether you found it soul-destroying and whether you're much happier now sort of um, to be out of that world and, yeah, what your thoughts are about the differences between working in the arts and working in the corporate world. Well, I mean, I've had a very, very fortunate and congenial life in that all of my corporate activities have been in, in working with the creative community so that all of my, my executive positions have been in, in film and television and music and media and have involved working with a very large body of, of very potently creative people and um, if I have skills apart from a capacity for very, very relentless commitment to hard work. Um, I think I'm probably very good as an enabler with creative people and as someone who is a, a strong supporter and facilitator and critic um, with their work. I've had no discomfort whatsoever in working in corporate life and uh, corporate, corporate life generates the financial wealth of the nation. It's pretty fundamental to making the merry-go-round. Ra- go so... I, I, I am not in any way an apologist for or in any, in any aspect of my life ashamed about having had a very vigorous commercial career. Which I don't mean aggressively, I just I mean it very positively in terms of a commercial career. Kim, you've, you've had an extraordinary career. I mean, to think that you are managing whole organisations at the age of 20 and here you are still relatively young and you've ticked off so many boxes. Thank you. It's, it's fantastic to, to consider what the next stage is going to be. Both tonight and recently on Q&A you demonstrated to a wide audience your um, clarity of thought and your, your vision. Perhaps it hasn't been spelled out directly but you certainly have a great idea about the future, where we should be, um, the values of our community, etc. What's next? Um, well, I'm doing a variety of things. I've, um, I've, I've become a commissioner of the Australian Football League. Um, I'm on the board of the, the um, Australian Grape and Wine Authority. 
I'm on them, which is great fun. <laughs> At 7am tomorrow, I'm winging my way to Adelaide for the Winemakers Federation Outlook Conference. Um, Can you get me on that board? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm on a couple of commercial boards of private companies, um, which have done recent fundraisings and wanted an independent director. Um, I'm on the State Library Foundation board and the University of Western Sydney Foundation board, a variety of things like, like that. But I, um, I tend to become a much more ardent, um, vigorous advocate for issues attaching to education. Um, I, I personally think the, vo the, the, the largest, most important voiceless minority in our society are children. Um, and parents are not a satisfactory proxy for children. Many parents may not have the perspective or understanding that is so central to giving kids a proper go in, in, in life, particularly in poor communities. I don't mean that patronisingly about parents, but if you, if you sit calmly and read the Gonski Report a couple of times and actually read it and, and read the care of the, with the, of the analysis that was set out in that very disciplined, thoughtful document where it caused to bring into being a whole series of research studies that looked at the absolute performance of our education system and then looked to the various cohorts of advantage and disadvantage within our education delivery. There were several things that are extraordinarily important for the future of Australia. The first is that education performance standards are declining across the board. So whether you are economically advantaged or disadvantaged, the performance level in schools is going down. Second thing is there is marked increase in clustering into cohorts of advantage and cohorts of disadvantage. The cohorts of advantage um, tend to concentrate into private education, of course, and I'm not speaking against private education, but it's not widely known that Australia has the highest levels of private education in the OECD. We now have over 30% of students who go to private schools. The corresponding number in America, as Carl will, will verify, is 7%. Um, I'm surprised it's that high. Yeah. In, in, in Britain, the, the number of kids in private schools is 10%. We have 30%. So what Gonski what the report said is, OK, that's happened. We have a system where parents choose and we have a three-tiered system, essentially. We have non-denominational private, we have denominational private and we have public. There's still 70% of the kids are in public. The concentration of disadvantage in, in the cohorts in public is very severe. And no-one can tell me that we don't all have skin in the game of society's future and ensuring that all kids are given a, an equal opportunity. I find, I, I cannot begin to tell you how shameful and debasing I, 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 I find it socially that a kid born into intense cohort of disadvantage has virtually zero opportunity of breaking out from that because of the way in which the funding and, and, and a current system operates. And Gonski said, Education should be funded according to need, whether you're in private or public. It's a pretty simple proposition. And that there should be absolute measures of standards 
and equal aspirational performance for all. It's pretty simple stuff. I mean, they said a lot more, but I intend to be very active in that area and to actually become a much more vigorous proponent uh, in a policy sense of, about these things because I, I am truly alarmed about the direction of many current settings in public education. In, in education, I should say, but also in public education. And when, I read the, when I read this, the, the, the curriculum, in the music curriculum, I, 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 I was uncontrollably enraged. I mean, this is, this is a, a document produced by simpletons. I, I, it's interesting you talk about the, um, the difference between public and private, and in, in the U.S., the difference is between urban and suburban. I mean, p private schools are such a small part. I mean, the, ed the public education system in the U.S. is so big, and, and in the rich uh, suburban communities is as good as any private school in the world, and in the inner cities, in New York and L.A., Chicago, Philadelphia, it's, it's just terrible. It's just awful. And so the breaking out is, is just as impossible, even though they're all, mostly all public schools. It's, it has to do with economics, and it, the, 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 the suburban schools um, fund, are funded by property taxes, and there's lots of it. And in the city schools, there's practically nothing. But the, but the, the, the effect is the same. The, you just can't break out of, the, out of it. Kim, I'd ask you to draw on your experience as a leader of one of Australia's leading media organisations. And you alluded earlier in your speech tonight about the fact that today, if we had to rebuild the Opera House, there'd be probably little support for it in the media. And I can't help but think when it comes to music education that perhaps, I mean, it's a very complex issue, but there seems to be little support in the media for the arts. I mean, when was the last time that the achievements of an Australian musician, artist, writer that's not involved in Hollywood were celebrated on the front page of one of our local newspapers. I'm struggling to recall such an occasion. And so I guess I'd be interested in hearing your comments about why doesn't the media treasure the arts in Australia? Because I think until they do, it'll be very hard to advocate because the broad public really doesn't understand the importance of arts and the media has a big role to play in that, in my opinion. Well, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I, I think that we have um, a pretty shabby um, media engagement with creative life and intellectual life in Australia generally. Um, and radio aside, I think that the organisation which lets the side down the most in that area is the ABC. I think ABC television is, is disengaged from those sorts of issues, other other than with occasionally on a current affairs program, but um, it, it 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 is not in television a broadcaster that has any interest in the arts. Does a terrific job on radio, R I think really does a really splendid job on radio, and 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 is is is, is very committed and celebratory and expository about a very broad field of, of, of creative life in, in our country and I, I, you know, all power to it for, for doing that. But television is profoundly resistant to having any real engagement in that area and uh, I, I find that very alarming. Um, in print media I think it's usually been, been 
been thus. It doesn't defend it, but I, I think it's usually been thus. I mean, there are forays from time to time by, by the, the, the Fairfax Papers and the Australian. Um, but apart from that, there's not much engagement with, with these things. And you're right. I mean, we, we do not have the same degree of honour accorded to Australians in those fields of endeavour and in the sciences that one sees in, in other areas of, of human activity. And it's, um, it's, a, it's an alarming maturity gap in, in the sort of personality of the nation. I think it does reflect the personality of the nation, I regret to say. We'll get you in a second. I think this uh, follows on from that issue. You've had um, direct engagement with a lot of people at the, uh, in, in positions of power and influence. Do you see any strategy by which those people could give greater status to the arts? Um, I, I've reflected on that many times, Dick, and it, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing, uh, but I, I, I think we simply have to have recourse to targeting politicians in a much more campaign-like way, matching firepower. And the one thing that we we have from time to time been able to trot out, of course, are stars that the public know and love and care about and want to see good outcomes for. And frankly, I, I think we probably haven't entrepreneured those sorts of campaigns in a much more extended way that, that really, really hammers home the, um, the delivery until the desired change is, is secured. I, I think we've been pretty sloppy about it. And I, I blame our side for that. Now, the reason for that is long and complex. The creative communities are always magnificently, frustratingly divided. <laughs> they, they always have a, a marvellous profusion of views, more, usually more views in the room than people. And so getting unalloyed alignment and connection over a long period of time is very hard. I mean, I, I can remember some of the, the arguments in the film industry back in the 1980s, which were absolutely volcanic. And the take, I made the mistake once of taking a, couple, a few of my... Um, a few writers and others into the cabinet room and it was a terrible mistake because <laughs> suddenly they, they started debating with each other as we were presenting to, you know, in this short window that we had available to, to Paul Keating and Bob Hawke. And Bob at one stage said, Kim, I think your, your mates can leave the room now. I said, right. He said, you can stay. But, you know. And, of course, when, then I stayed for another hour and we were having a, you know, real dust-up. And, um, I mean, he was very fair in the process, but... Of course, when I came out, they all wanted to know why. Why were you in there? And you know, and you know, it was it was really not a happy moment. So it just needs more planning, a lot, lot more effort in execution. 
Kim, you're absolutely... Change is very hard in Australia. This is an incredibly conservative country. It, people have to understand Australia is unbelievably, committedly, devastatingly, passionately conservative. Changing things in Australia is very, very hard. And those politicians who actually have been able to secure change in Australia deserve a lot of, a lot of, of thanks on the part of the nation because we are bad at change. Now, there are no doubt... We've all read the histories and all of the various theories on it. I just think Australians have a deep insecurity about change. And I think it's personally a reflection of this immaturity in terms of our creative and intellectual development. Now, if we all learnt music more, if everyone was out there playing in quartets, it would all be better, wouldn't it, Carl? Absolutely. It's funny, you talk, you talk about changing. When I, in, in my 20 years in, in higher education, um, I've found that it's college professors, the, the, the professorate is the most progressive, as individuals are the most progressive people for the most part. Um, and then when you get them all together and you sit down and you say, well, we want to change the curriculum, they're the they're the worst. They're the, the most conservative, and no, nothing can go. The only thing we can... <laughs> it's, just a, it's just bizarre. G Glenn Davis <laughs> has the best joke in the world about that. How many academics does it take to change a light globe? Change? Yeah. <laughs> Kim, you're absolutely right about the caution, I would say timidity as well as conservatism of this country. My own suspicion is that it comes from our long colonial history and I've been reading a lot recently about the Australian decision to get engaged in World War I and the need to get the affirmation of Britain was extraordinary and that's, that's part of it. And when you talked about ABC television, you're absolutely right and it brought to mind a comment made to me by a former director of television, that opera will go on to ABC television over my dead body. And for opera, you could read anything to do with the high arts. It was a wonderful piece of advice that Joe Carl gave. It's so typical of the man that uh, he was a great, great premier, actually. Hmm. Uh, but uh, a great piece of advice, get out there digging. My advice to you would be place not your trust in vice-chancellors, but that's, a, that's another <laughs> matter. However, I want to ask a serious point about what you said about the almost exclusive engagement with Australians with sporting excellence. Now, Bob Carr once said to me, the difference between you and me, Jack, is that you're just indifferent to sport and I have a positive antipathy towards it. <laughs> he underestimated the fact that I had eight years in Christian Brothers schools and never once played football for the school, but, you know, that's another matter. Why do you think it is that we have engaged with sport so much and why do you think it is that we have and continue to do musical education so badly? Well, look around you. I mean, we have such a marvellous climate for sport. We have such a, a fantastic kind of environment for getting outside and playing with balls um, and running and doing all the things that attach to sport. Sport is, sport is not a bad thing. Sport is a, a marvellous thing. And sport sees many people achieve... Re truly remarkable things and the things that are reflected in great team sport are things that would be 
are, are equally applicable in, in, in fine music execution in terms of, of, of absolute coordinated teamwork of everyone having a part to play that is, that is curated and, and understood, of all of these, these kind of invisible umbilical links that, that enable excellence to absolutely come through, striving to succeed, striving to be your very best. These are noble and really important values. And, and I, I, think, I think it's sad that often in creative life people speak about sport in terms of denigration rather than you actually say, how do I harness all of that enthusiasm and, and energy and desire for, for greatness and bring it across into creative and intellectual life in a similar way? Because that's our challenge. Our challenge is to actually translate what happens there into, into all of the, the other parts of, of life that is that is, you know, securely fundamental to a better future for our country. And I mean, really, really fundamental because the kind of digital cyclones that exist in the world today and the disintermediation that is at play in, in the world today will see, in, our, in my lifetime, I'm confident we will progressively see the disintermediation of nations because of the, the sheer, um, in the, the, the complete levelling nature of, of digital technologies and, and the internet. And places like Australia, which have small populations, are going to be tremendously exposed unless they perform really, really well. Kim, I have to tell you, I, I have two daughters. One, uh, my oldest daughter, is a music professor at the University of Arizona. And my younger daughter is a synchronized swimming coach. And it's... Esther Williams. Yeah. Um, it's, my, it's My late, long-distance auntie. <laughs> auntie Esther, as I call her. <laughs> my younger daughter would shudder a little bit when Esther Williams is brought up. But um, anyway, um, and it, it's... I know they're sisters, but the, the way that they're able to support each other because they do com two completely different mm -hmm. things, but at the core... They, they do the same thing. And you're, I, 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 I see it just when I see them interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it's absolutely, yeah, yeah what he said. <laughs> Other questions? There? Okay. Thank you for your speech, Mr. Williams. I enjoyed it very much. Pleasure. Every day Parliament is in session in Canberra, I would love to see it start with a performance by a great young Australian musician every day. Could you and Richard Gould do something about that? <laughs> I'll accept the challenge. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Kim, handle that. <laughs> that's a, actually, I think it's, that's a fabulous idea. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. I got a thousand students here. I would send one of them out there every day. <laughs> no, no, no. Disintermediation is the the, the elimination of intermediate um, processes or or um, um, individuals or 
mercantile behaviours that stand between a, a need and a, and, a, and a provision. I mean, the most common example would be think of the way in which you borrow money from a bank. The bank is actually an inter intermediary because the, the bank is actually using other people's money. So the technology now can facilitate a very direct linkage between the person who has the need and the person who has the money, and the technology will secure the agreement between them um, like and, 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 and lock that in so that you've disintermediated a whole area of commercial life in terms of banking. Now, that's happening now. And the, 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 the cyclonic force and the, the hurricane-like speed of this change is changing the world forever. We are, we are going into a world that is profoundly different. And the most, the most significant element inside this change is that the power management in society has changed because power has moved from producers to consumers. And we're living in an era where, in my view, where consumer empowerment is absolute. And consumers, through technology enablement, are making very rapid-fire, stern and lasting judgments on all manner of things. And most of the way in which those judgments are made are different from the way in which my parents or their parents made judgments. Because the inputs are, in many instances, from either a circle of their friends or a whole community of completely unknown, anonymous people on the internet who provide advice on which you make judgment. And the media and, and commentator, professional commentators and others are way down the totem pole in terms of what people trust. We've seen a complete reinvention in the trust contract struct of society. It's the most fascinating phenomenon. I'm not saying it's good or bad, it, it just is. But in that process, the speeds increase and the potency is, has an energy force field larger than, any, than anything any, anyone has ever experienced. And the impacts on societies, on polities like Australia, are going to be truly profound. And the, the only way to address it, in my view, is positively in an engaged, creative way that is absolutely focused on innovation and invention and, and really throwing oneself in because otherwise larger economic agents will simply swallow up smaller ones, unless they're doing things that are really original and, and fundamentally, def definitionally different. Sorry to be long-winded. I, I think the rules of engagement in, in life have gen I think rules of engagement are very important in life. And I think in, in all aspects of life, and I think the rules of engagement in many of the pillars of life are... Um, under siege by, by alternate forces that offer different rules of engagement.
and I think it's important to sort of define what one's own rules of engagement are. I, I, I have very strong views about what my rules of engagement are, so I'm more describing in the book what those rules of engagement are and what the things that have motivated. I mean, it's not, a, not an indulgent... I hope it's not an indulgent book. I mean, inevitably it is in some parts because you're writing a bit about yourself, which is, you know, pretty uninteresting. <laughs> but um, well, I shouldn't say that. My publisher will get very upset. But, um, but it, it describes what I see as being rules of engagement. Other questions? Yeah. Kim, you seem earlier to be saying that art, I'm sorry, music makes us better people in, in some sense. Um, could you say specifically in which way it makes us better people? Because, for example, Robert Hughes says that art doesn't make us morally better, uh, and he gives us proof the fact that, um, if it, well, the statement that if it did, then critics would all be saints, which they aren't. Uh, so how does, how does music make us better people, well, if you I, think I, it does? I, th I think it does in several ways, which I, I, I aimed to present in the speech. The first thing is that music requires that you shut up and listen and that you focus on listening. And if you're to engage with music, you really need to concentrate and listen. And I think listening is one of the, the lost skills in a lot of our contemporary world. So that in developing a, a refreshed capacity to listen and hear, people actually improve their ability to engage and communicate with each other. Second, music activates more neural pathways than any other activity in human existence. And this has been tested on many, many MRI um, examinations. In fact, David Robertson, the chief conductor of the Sydney Symphony, was talking about this recently. And he did, he, he'd heard about the MRI test and he'd read some of them and he wanted to do one. And so he, he did one and he, he had the Beethoven Fifth or something played through, through headphones into his, um, while, while he was put through the MRI. And of course, it's a difficult experience having a headphone with the MRI because you can't have any metal. So it's actually just got to be sort of a tube that comes to you. So, you know, it's not a particularly pure music experience. But So it, it lit up his brain, no surprise in that. They've done the experiment many times and they see the way and it actually gets all the cortexes firing. And other things don't. They've, they've done similar tests with, with pictures or, or with smells and, you know, they've, they've done very, very thorough tests in terms of what activates your brain. And then he did the most amazing thing. He said, look, I'm, I'm doing the Eroica Symphony at the moment. I know the piece terribly well. I've performed it many times. I want to hear it in my head and you to do an MRI on me. And it activated just as much. Now, that is fascinating. Now, I have a... I, I think... It, it's more than just anecdotal evidence because it's been written about a great deal, that the cross-cultural impact or the cross-disciplinary impact, I should say, between music and other things is quite marked. I mean, people have spoken about mathematics and music on, on many occasions, the way many mathematicians are also 
quite good musicians. Um, you know, Einstein is regularly used as an example in terms of his 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 facility as a as a as a, a fiddle player, and of course his great passion for music. And of course he wrote the book on Mozart and 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 all of that stuff. You know, he's really and played and played in a string quartet very almost all his life. I mean, Jack will know just how long he played. I forget how long, but it was a very long time that he played in a string. <laughs> but he loved he loved playing, um, and there are many many examples of of this kind of cross disciplinary tracking between science and and um, music and maths and music. Um, I, I think it actually liberates intellectual energy. Uh, I, I think it, and I think it also does another thing, and that it sensitizes us. I mean. I think music makes you feel. Now, in my instance, sometimes I feel a bit too much, but, um, you know, it's not a bad thing to feel. I think it's a pretty good thing. I I think we all need to feel more. I I think we all need to have a good dose of sensitised feeling. (laughs) I think it's good for us. Yes, he, he was a very unusual person. (laughs) <laughs> and a very great artist. But. Well, we're coming up to the end. We have a little reception, and I think there's some... Did, did I mention that Kim's book is for sale? <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, we have a table where I think you're going to sign books. do some signing. Mm. But before we go, I have a little present for you, Mr. Williams. <clears throat> Last year, the Association for European Conservatories, which we're a charter member, I have no idea why, but we are, was in Palermo. So I bought a couple bottles of Zabibo. Have you ever had Zabibo? I haven't had Zabibo. Okay, Zabibo is a grape only grown in Sicily. Fantastic. It's like drinking sunshine. Oh, how fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm very touched.